Чем больше из Москвы лунает божевільних заяв, тем больше должна быть наша сила, только сила нашего захисту життя, нашей способности досягати власних цілей, може повернути Росію до стану хоча б часткової тверезості. Російське божевілля повинно програти цю війну. Two years ago, Vladimir Putin launched a war of aggression and a war of choice against Ukraine, and he expected it to be a cakewalk. It wasn't. Rather than a quick shock and awe assault that would spark regime change in Kyiv, Ukraine instead fought Russia to a draw, driving its forces away from the capital and fighting them to a standstill in the Donbass. A year ago, fresh off successful offenses in Kharkiv and Ersan, Ukraine's military appeared in the eyes of many to be poised for victory. That is until a much anticipated summer counteroffensive came up short. Which brings us to now on the eve of the two-year mark of the war. With the front in the east deadlock, Russia gearing up for its own offensive and American defense assistance to Kyiv stalled in the U.S. Congress. So where does the war go now? And where do the politics of the war go in the West and in Ukraine? We'll stick around, because I got just the guests to help us break it all down. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Morgan Hill, California, in the lovely Bay Area, is Stephen Piper, who served as the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000 and is currently embedded at Stanford University Center for International Security and Cooperation. Welcome back to The Vertical, Steve. Thanks for having me, Brian. Great to have you. And also joining us from the awesome city of Toronto, Canada, is my old friend Marta DeChalk, an associate professor of history and political science at the University of Western Ontario and the CERES fellow at the University of Toronto. Welcome back to the podcast, Marta. Good to see you. Brian, it's great to be here. Thanks. Great to have you. So as I noted in my intro, the the war has had something of a seesaw quality in terms of perceptions. Uh, When Russia invaded on February 24th, 2022, the expectation among many was that Ukraine was doomed and the key was going to fall in a matter of weeks. When Ukraine won the Battle of Kyiv and drove Russian forces away from the capital, Western support solidified, and the Ukrainian forces won significant victories, most notably in Kharkiv and in Kherson. And then there was a palpable sense that Ukraine could be on the verge of victory, could be on the verge of liberating all of its territory, including Crimea. And very serious people were saying that. Today, the overall vibe is again doom and gloom. This despite the fact that, as we discussed in the podcast last week, Ukraine is showing a remarkable ability to hit Russian naval assets in the Black Sea and military assets in Crimea. Steve, you've always been good at reality checks. Um, We've we've, we've been talking about a lot of issues for, for years. You've always been very good at reality checks for me. Give us your assessment about where the war stands here at the two year mark, both militarily and politically, because it's often the case in this war, as I kind of just outlined, that things are never quite as bad as we think, and things are never quite as good as the conventional wisdom of the moment may suggest. Yeah, no, I, I think your point is correct about sort of the seesaw nature of the war, but also the seesaw nature of perceptions. So a year ago, perhaps we were overly optimistic about Ukraine's prospects, but I believe that the narrative now at the beginning of 2024 has become too negative, this idea that Russia is winning. Now, to be sure, 
Ukraine is on the defensive. But if you look at what Russia has done on the ground, Russia today in February 2024 controls only a little bit more territory of Ukraine than it controlled back in February of 2023. Mm -hmm. And Russia controls much less than it controlled in the first half of 2022. And if you go over the Last year, I mean, the two big ground victories for Russia have been Bakhmut last spring and Avdivka. Neither of those cities had much strategic significance. Right. And it looks like the Russians paid a price and measured in tens of thousands of Russian dead soldiers to take those places. So, yeah, I don't think you can say Ukraine's winning, but I'm not sure we're at the point where Ukraine is losing. Now, the political question, I mean, is I think it's really a question at this point of, of Western support. And I guess I'm surprised in that I would not have picked into this two years ago, but Europe seems to be very strong on supporting Ukraine. Uh, yes. Yes. Two years ago, we were questioning, can Europe hang in there? Well, Europe is hanging in there, and, and Europe, <laughs> by one count, is doing more than twice as much military, financial, and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine as the United States. And I'm surprised and I'm disappointed to say that the question mark now is over the United States, this really is over the Republican Party and specifically the right wing of the Republican Party. And Speaker Mike Johnson, who for now four months has held up uh, a new American assistance package for Ukraine. Yeah, and we're going to talk in detail in the second half about the politics of this. Yeah. I, I'd really want to get your, your 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 take on that. Steve, are you optimistic right now, though? I mean, because I've, I've kind of gone through phases of this where I've been more and less optimistic throughout the world. How are you feeling about it right now? Yeah, I'm, I guess I'd say I'm less optimistic than I'm a year a year ago. But you know, President Zelensky, the Ukrainians have said they're going over to the defensive. And one thing that we've seen in the past two years is defense usually succeeds against offense. I mean, the Ukrainians were able to stop the Russians back in 2022. You know, the Russians were able to stop the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So I, I think Ukraine has the ability to basically hold the Russians back and then again, provided there's a continuing supply of Western arms, because right. you sort of rebuild some offensive capability with a view to taking maybe a more offensive stance towards the end of the year. Yeah, and that's all contingent on us getting them the arms they need. There's a shortage of artillery. This is um, this this the the fall of Avdivka. As Zelensky correctly pointed out, this is due to the the, the lack of supply of Western Western armaments. And I I, have, I can't say I disagree with President Zelensky there. Marta, you've been of course following this work very closely, uh, both as a scholar of Ukraine and as a proud Ukrainian Canadian. Um, with skin in the game, so to speak. Um, I clearly remember a conversation we had very, very, very early in the war when I said, hey, Marta, I think Ukraine can win this thing. And he responded, of course, Ukraine's going to win this thing. Um, how have your perceptions of this evolved throughout this? Because you're very plugged in with, Ukraine, with, with Ukrainians, with the diaspora community. You're following this as closely as anybody. How, how, how have your perceptions evolved over the course of the war? Well, I stand by what I initially said. And if you remember, I said, I think Ukraine has already won mm -hmm. because they're standing up for themselves and they will continue to do so. And the only question is, how long will this take and what cost will there be to pay? And I believe that's true today. Mm -hmm. I don't see that Ukraine is backing down. I don't see any indication that Ukraine is planning to back down. And I saw an opinion piece today's uh, New York Times where Rajan Menon agrees with me, although he yep. uses different words. He says Putin has already lost. 
but that's just the other side of what I'm saying, because I'm putting it in the positive, that if we leave aside the, the military stuff, which Ambassador Piper is much more qualified to talk about than I am, uh, this is really a war of will. Mm -hmm. This is Russia trying to establish control over Ukraine, say, you don't exist, we're going to swallow you, and Ukraine's saying, no, there's absolutely no way that you're going to swallow us, and we're going to fight in any way we can, as long as we can. And we see this very clearly in the occupied territories. I mean, that's a story that's not getting enough attention in international media, as far as I'm concerned. There's an active resistance yeah. in all the occupied territories. And that, for me, is an indication that even if militarily Russia takes over certain parts of Ukrainian territory, that doesn't mean that Ukraine is saying, okay, we're going to join you and do what you want. They continue to resist, and I believe that will continue. But the reality is that this is being decided on the battlefield. Totally agree with Ambassador Pfeiffer that the supply of arms is crucial. There's also, I'm not a military expert, but again, following on what was already said, there's this theory of attrition that Ukraine, this war of attrition that Ukraine can wear down the Russian army. And there's a great article that I saw recently by Franz Stephen Gotti and Michael Kaufman making mm -hmm. this argument that uh, Ukraine doesn't need to be on the offensive all the time, but they can wear down the Russians. Their capacity to fight is they have the numbers. But if Ukraine fights smart, and we see the Russian losses have been much higher than the Ukrainian losses because Ukrainians are fighting smart. Yeah, and a lot of that credit goes, and I hope General Sierski continues the outside-the-box methods that that General Zeluzhny had used, because that's, this is where we'll get into this in a bit. I, I was disappointed to see General Zeluzhny go because I got enormous respect for him. Marta, I, I wanted to stick with you just for a moment here because I know you're doing some research right now. This is kind of a bright spot on Ukraine that's not getting a lot of attention, and this is the the idea of, like, media freedom during a war in which your adversary is using media and disinformation to undermine your morale. Ukraine's trying to thread, and this, in terms of governance, and I always see, I see the Russia-Ukraine thing as a battle of governance. I wrote about that this week uh, in the national interest. Ukraine is being very innovative, not surprising, it's a nation of innovators, in terms of crafting regimes of media freedom and at the same time, controlling against disinformation. I know you're working on this, so I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about this a little bit. Yeah, no, this is quite a, an extraordinary story that, you know, that old saying, uh, the first casualty of war is the truth, right? And yet that hasn't happened in Ukraine. That Ukraine has been walking this fine balance between freedom of speech and state security. Now, in the age of social media and fake news, everything changes because social media is this double-edged sword that Ukrainians can document and share things, but it's also a vehicle where, where Russia is spreading disinformation. So that is another important battlefield. The impact of the information war is, I think, overrated because mm -hmm. we have information about what's going on in Ukraine, and yet we still have people who are Putin supporters in Western democratic countries. And it frustrates me to no end when I read 
really intelligent scholars saying, well, Ukraine really does need to sit and negotiate. So the amount of information or disinformation doesn't seem to be shifting people's views dramatically, but where it does have an impact is people who are uninformed about Ukraine yep. when they see the images of the atrocities or that's where they start coming on board. And you're familiar with the recent public opinion poll conducted by the Pew Center for Research on American Public Opinion, where 73% of the American population believes that supporting Ukraine is their national interest. And that's where I'd like to throw it over to Ambassador Pfeiffer, because, the, I mean, the, there's a small handful of white men who are blocking American support to Ukraine, where the overwhelming majority of the United States supports the aid. And the I just, overwhelming majority, I'm sorry, the overwhelming majority of both the United States and the United States Congress in both houses. All we, that, that first, the supplemental passed with, I think it was over 70 votes, Steve, if I'm not mistaken. And in the House, the whip count says it'll pass. It's got to get it to the floor. And Speaker Johnson doesn't want to do that. And, you know, we're waiting. I mean, we're going to get into this in detail in the second half. But, yeah, Steve, you wanted to address Marta. Marta would like to hear from you on this, actually. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think the polls show that the American public strongly supports providing assistance to Ukraine. Now, I think those numbers go up and down a little bit as the perception of Ukraine status is. So, you know, when Ukraine was doing better a year ago, the numbers were slightly higher. But still, 70 percent is a pretty strong majority of support. And again, I, I just like to go back to this question, which, which Marta touched on about winning and losing. This war has a different aspect for Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. For Russia to win, Russia has to win on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Right now, Ukraine wins by not losing. Right. Remember George Washington back in our revolution. Uh, back, you know, I mean, he basically felt at the end of the day, as long as he kept an army in the field and did not lose, he could outlast the British. And I think that works on the Ukrainian side as well. At some point, I, I can't tell what that point is. At some point, one has to assume that the steady flow of dead bodies going back to Russia in a war that is clearly neo-imperialist in nature, that's going to have an impact on both elite and public support for Putin's continuing this war. Well, let's let's drill into that a bit with both of you, because this is something that's been bugging me. It's it's the question you can't ask, but we kind of have to ask it right now. And you, you make up the point here, Steve, is Ukraine wins by not losing. Well, that would imply that the front line pretty much stays where it is or moves very slightly in one direction or another. And the thing that's been bugging me, and I've been talking to Ukrainians about this, um, I, I talked to Serhii Kudeli about it a couple of weeks ago. What is acceptable? Like, what is there something shy of 1991 borders that is acceptable? This is a painful, difficult, tricky, fraught emotional question but is i mean are, are we going to get to that point and are we going to have to start thinking in those terms can i jump in here yeah please do ukraine will not agree to anything less than 1991 borders and the reason for that is we all know what is happening in the areas that right. is controlled by Russia, and there's absolutely no way that they're going to leave their citizens in those conditions the only way that that will happen is if they're forced to do it, and that would be through military defeat. But through negotiations, that's I just I don't see that happening, nor should I think that should even be a point of discussion. 
because the, uh, the, the living conditions for people who are under in occupied territories, that is living in worse than Stalinist conditions. And that's no, I would just agree with you. unacceptable. Uh, from a moral perspective, I absolutely agree with you. But what I'm thinking about as a practical reception, uh, and Steve, I, I, you, you probably have something to say about this. I mean, at some point, I worry that the West is going to pressure Ukraine to sue for peace. I mean, we yeah. have, as Marta pointed, otherwise intelligent people making ridiculous arguments to this effect. Um, I think it's way early to be having these discussions now. But I worry that sometime in the future, we're going to have that discussion. What, what do you think? Because I worry about not I don't worry about the Ukrainians. I worry about us. No, no. I, let me say, I, I agree with Marta. I mean, at this point in time, it's very clear that both in the Ukrainian government and an overwhelmingly segment of the Ukrainian population, their concept of victory is they get back to the 1991 border. And I think Marta makes also a very important point. When when people talk about, well, you know, conceding land to Russia, you're not just conceding land, you're conceding the people who live on that land. Yep. And we're seeing now in Russian-occupied territory what that means. I, I guess what my point would be is, that if Ukraine at some point decides it has to set, accept something less than 1991 borders, that's a decision for Ukrainians' government and Ukrainian people to make. Uh, and the West should support that, whatever decision yeah. they make. But I also, but the flip side is, the West should not be pushing Ukraine uh, now to negotiate for something less. The, the way I tend to frame the American objective, it should be to give Ukraine the support it needs so that Ukraine can either drive the Russian military completely out back to the 1991 border or get to a point where Ukraine can negotiate a settlement on terms that Ukraine's government and Ukraine's people can accept. But this has to be a Ukrainian decision. And thus far, I think, you know, certainly in Washington, uh, whatever doubts and questions they may have behind the scenes, they've been pretty clear that they're not going to push the Ukrainians to enter into a negotiation on terms less than the Ukrainians seek. And the, and the Europeans are holding pretty strong on that as well. Yeah, I agree with you, Steve, that that is the public position that the United States govern, which I wholeheartedly support. But you and I both know that within the administration and certainly within the Congress, you have people who think otherwise. And when we see these articles in the New York Times or the Washington Post or Foreign Affairs or elsewhere with people whom we will not name on this program because I don't like to call people out, making this argument. Those don't happen by accident in our nation's capital, Steve. Those are indicative of there's somebody's carrying somebody's water. These are indicative of elite elite thinking and thinking within the administration. And every time I see one of these, I'm thinking, whose water is this person carrying? I have my suspicions. Yeah, I, I guess where I come down on that is um, I, I am critical of the administration in that, you know, from the beginning, they've said they have two goals. One is to help Ukraine win. The other is to avoid a direct NATO-Russia military conflict. Those are the right two goals. I, But my criticism of the administration is that in balancing these goals, they've been overly cautious. Exactly. They normally come to the right decision but it takes them three, four, five, six months longer. I mean, you mm -hmm. didn't need to have a six-month decision over providing F-16s or M1 Abrams tanks. Or attack them. Yeah. Uh, now, but so I, I'm critical there. But at least on my conversations with people inside the government, 
I, I think that they are thus far pretty true to the word that, you know, they're not going to push the Ukrainians. Now, I don't know what happens six or eight months down the road, but at least this point, I, I think that they are, you know, when they say publicly that, you know, they're not going to push Ukraine into a negotiation, I, I think that that reflects where Washington is, particularly at a time when there's absolutely no sign of any indication from Moscow to negotiate in a serious way. I mean, basically, when the Russians are asked, what are you prepared to negotiate? Well, we're prepared to negotiate Ukraine's capitulation on our terms. Right. So, I mean, and, you know, this question of Western resolve, and again, Hill staffers, if you're listening, and I know some of you are, push your bosses, please, especially Republican staffers. I talk to you all in private, and you know, we, we all want this thing. Let's get it done. In terms of, I mean, we, we discussed Western resolve, which I'm nervous about. Ukrainian resolve, I'm less worried about, but I do want to like kind of get your perspective on this, Marta, because you're again in, in very close touch with people in Ukraine and with people in the broader diaspora. I was in Kiev a year ago. I was pretty blown away by the level of resolve. Um, it was, it was. I mean, I, I expected it. I know the Ukrainians pretty well by now, but it even exceeded my own expectations. I'm about to go again next month. And I'm not expecting to see the optimism I saw. I hope I'm surprised. How do you assess Ukrainian resolve? Um, we know it's not going to break. Do you see it bending? I don't see any change in the um, resolve. Where I do see a change is people are tired, and that is absolutely understandable. The optimism you talk about, I saw that last summer on my trip to Kyiv, and it was invigorating. Yeah. I am regularly in touch with a lot of people, and they're still doing what they were doing, but they're tired. And the other thing is they're worried, and they keep asking me, are you going to abandon us? Are you going to abandon us? Are you really not going to help us? So I'm saying that in a very kind of informal way because that's often how these conversations go because when we're talking about analysis, everybody's uh, even keeled. But then once you get to the personal conversations, there's a real sense of concern that Ukraine might be abandoned. And when you're you know, on a Skype call with somebody and you hear the air raid sirens and they're asking you that, it's it's very hard to say, yes, of course, we're going to continue helping, especially when the help is, is so lukewarm. And there's words, but there isn't enough, in my opinion, follow through in terms of both military aid and, and any other kind of aid. But I don't see a change in the resolve. I don't see that. I see it's just we're tired and please don't abandon us. That's the message I'm hearing most most often. Steve, you, of course, served as ambassador to Ukraine. You, you you know the Ukrainian people very well. How do you see this question? Do you worry about their resolve bending? I don't think it's going to break, but it might bend. I think Marta has it exactly right. I, mean, I think Ukrainians are tired. Uh, there already has been you know, two years since the Russians launched this major invasion, uh, but they still see this as an existential war. What's the choice? You know, if they lose, you know, their concept of Ukraine is gone, their democracy is gone, the idea of becoming a normal European state is gone. So they, I think, they don't have the luxury of saying that we want to opt out. And I, I, we had a, at Stanford about a week and a half ago, we had a, a Ukrainian delegation with a couple of uh, Ukrainian uh, soldiers. And it was interesting. I mean, you know, in addition to fighting for Ukraine, 
you know, what they reflected was just in the ranks of the army is just this desire for revenge against Russians. Mm-hmm. This, this is something um, that, you know, when I served in Ukraine back in the 19, late 1990s, I would have said about maybe 5% of the population was really anti-Russian, mainly in the nationalist parts of the West. Most Ukrainians were either ambivalent or, you know, favorably uh, disposed towards Russia. That's changed. I mean, Vladimir Putin's war has created a Ukrainian population where the enmity towards Russia and Russians is so high, it will take decades, if not generations, to get past that. And yeah, and that sp- yeah, spans east to west, north to south as well. Russian speakers, Ukrainian speakers, it doesn't matter anymore. My God, I, I'm sure you've bumped into the same phenomenon, Steve, but most of my most of my Ukrainian friends speak Russian as a first language. They all speak Ukrainian as a second language. They, most of them speak Russian as a first language. They're the most fierce Ukrainian patriots I've ever encountered, um, no less so than Ukrainian speakers and the people, people who speak Ukrainian as a first language in the West. Um, I, I notice... The language issue has lost all of its salience, um, which is weird. I mean, Russia's kind of operating in the past. They're they're looking at the Ukraine of like the mid '90s rather than the Ukraine of the of the second decade of the 21st century. And this is again is one of these things that just has always blown my mind about how Russia just doesn't get Ukraine, and it's weird for a country to neighbor each other and to not get it like i think canadians and americans kind of get each other <laughs> we probably get under y'all skin sometimes but we we all understand each other pretty damn well russia doesn't understand ukraine which is absolutely remarkable to to, to me I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that steve it's just it's, it's I, I feel like this is a dated conversation it was probably in 2009 or 2010 when i visited moscow and i was at a dinner at the american ambassador's residence and there was a retired very senior Soviet foreign policy official there. And I asked him, I said, you know, I've been watching how Putin acts towards Yushchenko in Ukraine. Does anybody in the Kremlin really understand Ukrainian Ukrainians? And he paused for a moment, then he said, yeah, there's one person who really does understand Ukraine very well. And after him, he goes, but nobody listens to him. (laughs) I mean, the last time Vladimir Putin was in Kiev, was in the summer of 2013. Right. And he gave a speech, the central theme of which was, we Russians and Ukrainians are one people. That's, I think, kind of a tone-deaf thing to say in Ukraine, because for a segment of the ethnic Ukrainian population, what they hear is, you just, you know, denied my culture, my language, my history. Uh, I mean, it's not something that I think you you would go there and say if you really understood how it would resonate with the population. But this is just imperial thinking. Yes. Right? It's a it's a it's a mindset that is, you know, at least three hundred years old. And this is the product of the education system. This is the product of historical writing. This is something that has been centuries in the making. And it seems to me that a lot of Russians actually believe that narrative that Russians and Ukrainians are the same. They're unaware that they are imperial in their thinking. And this is where, as you know, a lot of the discussions in academia are about decolonizing the way we write history, the way we teach history, to first of all, draw attention to that. Because it's the same thing as, you know, the old Canadian and I'm sure American narrative. Europeans came and discovered this wonderful continent and civilized (laughs) the natives and built a big civilization here. They don't talk about the fact that, or they didn't used to, 
that, you know, Europeans came and colonized and perpetrated genocide against the indigenous population. But now we do have that narrative that this is settler colonialism. And there are very few people in Canada or the U.S. that believe that old story that we came and civilized those natives. That is an imperialist colonial offensive narrative. But that needs to happen in Russia. That historical narrative needs to change, and that has to change in people's heads. And once that happens, but that's going to take a while because yeah. Ukrainians know they're not Russians, but Russians don't know that Ukrainians <laughs> right, right? And also, we in the West need to do that more because Brian Yunet talked about this a lot. This is the new book that my, of mine that's just coming out, Ukraine, Not the Ukraine. How many people still say the Ukraine because it's part of Russia? That's how we still teach history in a lot of universities in Canada and the U.S., and that needs to change. Yeah, no, and it, it is changing. I mean, I see it changing in U.S. universities, changing much faster in Canadian universities. And my hat goes off to, to the Russians who are trying to start this conversation. And my, my good friend Mikhail Zigarth, latest book, War and Punishment, is I think the most honest uh, assessment on this topic that I have seen from a Russian to date. It's a book I loved so much. I read it twice. I know, Marta, you got to skip out pretty soon. There's one thing I wanted to hit on before Steve and I kind of dive into the the dysfunctional uh, morass that is American politics. Of this. Um, but before we do that, I, I did want to talk about the the Zaluzhny situation. Um, mm-hmm. This is a topic that's been kind of coming up on the podcast of naturally the last few weeks. Volodymyr Zelensky's decision to to dismiss of Lydia Zaluzhny over a series of things. There's a lot of ways to look at this. Like militarily, I think it was a mistake. I, I think it was a big mistake. But constitutionally, I recognize that the, 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 you know Zelensky has the right to choose his generals, right? Truman fired MacArthur. It can, it can happen. Um, But the thing, the big takeaway on this for me, two big takeaways. One, politics is kind of returning to Ukraine, right? Ukraine's famously chaotic, raucous politics is kind of coming back. Um, The other, though, is I contrasted the way the Zaluzhny situation, I did this in my article with the National Interest this week, the contrasting this way that this was handled, which would be recognizable to anybody in a Western liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. Right, the president fired the general, then he gave him the Hero of Ukraine award. He offered him an ambassadorship, which he turned down. They posted photos of themselves on social media, kind of you know shaking hands and Zelensky thanking him. Contrast that with the Prigozhin situation mm-hmm. in Russia. Similar thing, right? Similar thing, but it, and that ends up with a bunch of people dead in a march on Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, one looks like a democracy, the other looks like a crime syndicate. Right? It's and not just looks like it is. It is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Brian. I'm going to jump in here because I've just got a few minutes. But I think you'd hit the nail on the head. That article is really insightful. I think everybody should read it. And I'll let Ambassador uh, Pfeiffer talk about the, the military side of things because you're much more qualified. But the politics and the optics, you know, it's I don't know if it's such a great idea to change generals in the middle of awards, like changing horses in the middle of a race. On the other hand, the commander and the president, they really need to be towing the same line. And there was clearly tension there. Mm -hmm. And so that's how they resolved it. But the way they resolved it shows Ukraine is a democracy. And that's what they're fighting for, right? There wasn't what what happened behind closed doors. We'll know in 10 years. But what we saw is a very civilized, very professional parting of the ways. 
And I think that is what Ukrainians are fighting for. That's what they, that's the country they want. They squabble. It's imperfect. There's problems. But, you know, big picture, it is a democracy. And that's why, uh, getting back to your point about resilience, they're going to keep fighting for it because they don't want to live in a country that's controlled by people like Putin and, you know, Biden. Steve, any thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean... I think, first of all, Zelensky did a lot uh, to lead the defense of Ukraine in the first two years, you know. But there was some tension there, uh, and, and I think part of it is just understandable in human terms. I mean, Zelensky, I think, probably was hoping you know, that the counteroffensive would work. So there, it's it's a reflection of some tension, some frustration, which we should just understand. Uh, but and again, it was resolved in the right way. I'm sure there were people in the military who would have preferred to keep Zelensky. But again, as this one of the military officers I spoke to a week and a half ago, he said, if that's the president's decision, you know, the president, that's his that's his authority. He's the president. And the, the Ukrainian military seems to have taken that on board. And that's exactly the way you want to see a military that is basically under control of civilian leadership. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to segue, Marta. I know you got to run, so hang with me until I say goodbye. <laughs> but uh, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the politics of the war in the United States and the West and what we can expect going forward. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining us from the lovely Bay Area, Morgan Hill, California, is Stephen Pfeiffer, who served as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000 and is currently embedded at Stanford University's Center for International Security and Cooperation. And joining us from Toronto, Canada, has been my old friend Martin Duchok, an Associate Professor of History and Political Science at the University of Western Ontario and the CERES Fellow at the University of Toronto. Unfortunately, Marta has to leave us for another engagement at this point. So, Marta, thanks for joining and thanks so much for your insights. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to listening to the second part of the conversation as soon as and we'll, and we'll have you back on when your article about media freedom comes out. Steve, of course, you will be sticking around. You're stuck with me for another 20 minutes or so. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. You can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. And you can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical and check out the new Power Vertical newsletter on Substack. Я дякую всім світі, хто допомагає. Дякую усім, хто захищає нас, Україну, наших людей, наші принципи. Абсолютно, абсолютно справедливі принципи. Ніхто у світі не має права знищувати незалежні нації. Ніхто. І ми не дамо Росії знищити Україну. So in the opening months of the war, Ukrainian flags in the United States were ubiquitous. I saw them flying in Texas. I saw them flying over the iconic Philadelphia Museum of Art near the Rocky statue. Um, and sometimes it seemed here in Washington, there were more blue and yellow Ukrainian flags than there were red, white, and blue American flags, which is saying something. But this just wasn't just about flags. Bipartisan support for aiding Ukraine was strong in Congress and society and remained so. Europe opened its arms to Ukrainian refugees. And while the EU continues to provide substantial economic assistance, more than the U.S., by the way, 
there is a sense the public is beginning to tire. I will not use the term Ukraine fatigue, Steve, because I hate that phrase. But but Ukraine's ace in the hole has always been our support. Their ace in the hole in the hole has been their resolve as well, but it's their resolve with our support. This appears to be fading. The numbers are still good in the polls. I saw the latest Pew poll, but the enthusiasm isn't the same. It, the, the, the intensity is gone. Large majorities in both houses of Congress still support the supplemental, but due to our dysfunctional uh, politics, the House may not even get a chance to vote. Steve, how on earth did we get to this place? How did this become a partisan issue? And, and can we revive that enthusiasm that existed in the early part of the war? I, I think, first of all, you're right that public support for providing aid to Ukraine still remains strong. It may not be quite as strong as it was in the second half of 2022 or the the first part of 2023, but still 70%, that's a strong portion of Americans. Uh, The question I think we have to ask is what happened to the Republican Party? Yeah. For 30 years, you know, from 1991 after Ukraine regained independence up until a year ago, you know, support for Ukraine was almost an automatic bipartisan issue. Ukraine could count on strong support from Democrats and Republicans alike. And that's changed in the past year, I think, due to politics. And so you look at, for example, the Senate. I mean, what happened to somebody like Senator Lindsey Graham? This is somebody who was in Kiev, what, six months ago, showed up there and says, we will never, you know, let you down. We'll be with you all the way. And then goes and votes against the $60 billion package for Ukraine. You had that, that, that package passed the Senate, though, with 70 votes. That included 22 Republicans. So there's still a strong support in the Senate. I, again, I was surprised that Lindsey Graham voted no. I was surprised at some other senators who have advertised themselves supposedly on strongly uh, protecting American national interests, like Senator Tom Cotton voted no. But you still had enough to get that through fairly easily through the Senate. I also believe that if there was a free vote in the House of Representatives— the bill would, would pass with you know, not much trouble at all. Uh, remember back in, I think it was August or September, a group took a look at the, each individual Republican member of Congress and graded them on A to F in terms of support for Ukraine. And fully half of the Republican caucus in the House came out with A's and B's. Right. Speaker Mike Johnson came out with an F. And, and Mr. Johnson has several times said, Ukraine must prevail. We must support Ukraine. I mean, he made this strongly condemning statement about uh, Putin after the Navalny death a week ago. But nobody or few people on the planet could do more to frustrate Putin's ambitions right now than Mike Johnson. All he has to do is say, we're going to bring that bill to a vote right. to pass. And he won't. And and he's been stalling and he, he he's not been consistent in his reasons why. And it raises some real questions. I just don't understand. Now, he said he talks regularly to Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump historically has not been a big fan of Ukraine. And I wonder how much of uh, what uh, uh, his position and his refusal to bring the uh, bill to the floor of the House, how much that's driven by uh, what he's hearing from uh, Mr. Trump. Yeah, and that that leads to the 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 big elephant in the room here, right? Because the the reason this bill isn't going to the floor is the 45th president of the United States, basically. I think Johnson's afraid of losing his position. He has several members of Congress, including, I believe, Marjorie Taylor Greene, has said she would issue a discharge petition if he brought this to the floor. And one has to ask, I mean, I don't have an answer here, but I have suspicions. But, like, you have to wonder, all these 
all these Republicans who are citing kind of Russian talking points. They're almost verbatim Kremlin talking points about Ukraine, calling them Nazis and, and so on. One has to wonder what's going on in our politics, right? Is well, this just the gamification of our politics or is something more sinister happening? Because I'm, I'm yeah. worried about it. No, I, no I, I, I don't understand it. I mean, uh, gosh, I'm not going to advertise myself as, a, as an expert on American politics, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that part of this within the Republican Party is, and particularly in the socially conservative part of the Republican Party, is there's an affinity for Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Because he is, you know, very conservative on social values. You know, he's anti-abortion. He's anti-gay. He's anti-trans. Right. The shocking thing to me is, you know, they say that and say, boy, that's Putin. That's those are those are good values. And they ignore the fact that Putin has taken Russia back to Stalinist times. You know, the murder of, uh, of Navalny. You know, they'd lock Navalny away in a prison up above the Arctic Circle. It was clear, you know, until Vladimir Putin changed his mind, Navalny was going to be locked up there probably forever. That wasn't enough. They chose to murder him. Right. And and that doesn't seem to affect this Republican Party that still says, well, but Putin shares our social values. Yeah, one has to wonder this. I mean, whether that affinity goes beyond the social values. I never thought I'd be asking that question about people in the American body politic, but I am for the first time in my life now. I, the way this was explained to me years ago was that there were there were two kinds of Republican cold warriors. Um, there were the Republican cold warriors who hated the Soviet Union because it was a dictatorship. Uh, because it was authoritarian, and then and that was your those are your John McCain's and your Ronald yeah. Reagan's, right? And then there were those who hated the Soviet Union because it was atheist, um, because it was godless. And those are going to be less likely to assign the same attributes to Vladimir Putin's Russia because it's a it's a dictatorship, but it's it's a Christian one. Um, And this this worries me. The Kremlin's aware of this, Steve. The Kremlin's aware of this. Back in 2013, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about this based on a white paper that came out of a Kremlin-connected think tank, which was encouraging Russian policy to inject itself into the cultural wars in the United States and the West on the side of the right. And I wrote about it kind of, oh, that's kind of weird. That's a curiosity. That's an interesting man bites dog story. Um, Then it turned out to happen. Right. Then it turned out to happen. So I think we're we're dealing with it's not just us against them anymore. It's us against them and us against us. And that that bothers me. That scares me. Yeah. Well, and I, th- I think certainly the Kremlin has tried to do what it can to widen divisions within the United States uh, and to sort of appeal to that group. Uh, and yeah, it scares me as well. I mean, yes, Vladimir Putin, you know, in his own way, embraces Christianity. But right. if you look at the uh, the Russian Orthodox priests, these guys go out and basically bless nuclear weapons that are designed to incinerate Americans. Right. Uh, I, I'm not sure that Americans should be feeling a special affinity to that particular uh, religion as it's expressed in Russia. Um, I know I would agree with you certainly, um, but but yet they yet they are, yeah. and I've been reading a lot about the early 20th century, particularly the 1930s, right now because I think it's really instructive for our time. And we had a similar dynamic going on with Hitler before the war. You know, it was wiped out once Pearl Harbor happened and the U.S. entered the war. Um, but had that not happened, I, it's it's like the dynamics were not good. Um, I'm not sure what it's going to take to kind of kind of recreate a consensus 
um, around liberal democracy and against its opponents, because this this is the kind of the meta superstructure that the debate about Ukraine aid is taking place in right now, right? And that's that's weird. It doesn't help Ukraine, but uh, but I mean, you know, back to the, the the specific problem. I mean, I I see very little prospect that Mike Johnson is going to change his mind. So the question then becomes, you know, there are there's a number of Republican members of the House. I'm thinking of people like Mike Turner, who have been mm-hmm. very strongly saying that they strongly support Ukraine. There's also a Congressional Ukraine Caucus, which I think has yep. 10 or 12 Republican members. It does. That's more than enough to put together five or seven people to go to Mr. Johnson and say, look, bring the bill to the House or we'll do one of two things. We will join with the Democrats in a discharge petition to go over your head, or we'll call a vote to vacate. <laughs> right. Why should it be that the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the MAGA wing of the Republican Party have the ability to make threats when you probably have an equal or larger number of moderate Republicans who could make the same threat? But I don't know. I mean, somebody said, well, maybe after uh, the March primaries, where some of these people don't have to to feel a fear that they might be primaried by, you know, somebody endorsed by Trump, that they'll they'll have greater courage. Uh, but uh, now nah, it's I, I'd like to see that kind of ha- thing happen now because Ukraine, yeah, you know, people are dying in Ukraine. The longer this goes on without American assistance, I mean, the reports out of Adivka were that the Russians were firing, you know, anywhere from five to ten times as many artillery yeah. shells as the Ukrainians did. And that's going to continue until the United States can get back in the, the game and has the assistance funds so we can begin shipping our weapons to the Ukrainians. Yeah, I'm I'm holding out hope for that discharge petition, but discharge petitions take time. That's the thing. Oh, I, 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 it, takes, it takes some time to get it done, and Ukraine doesn't have a lot of time right now, and this is what concerns me. The other thing, as you pointed to, Steve, is these Republicans have to go to the mat if they're going to try to threaten Speaker Johnson that way or go over his head with a discharge position. They're going to have to go to the mat, and yeah, they're probably going to have to face a primary challenge now. Are they going to find the political courage to follow through on that? Many of them are not in, in deep red districts, right? Many of them are in purple districts where they're going to face a tough fight in the, in the general election campaign. The, the politics of this are really hard to game out. When I talk to staffers, and I, I don't know if it's the same with you, I hear optimists. We're going to get this done. We're going to get this done. We're, but then I've been hearing this for months, and we're still waiting. Yeah, and, and I, I think there needs to be, well, both on the part of the administration, but also on the part of those Republicans who say they support Ukraine, you know, a more concerted effort to explain why this is important. You know, I mean, people will say Ukraine's not a vital national interest of the United States. Put that aside, the United States has for seven decades defined a stable and secure Europe as a vital national interest. If Russia wins in Ukraine, which becomes much more likely if American assistance is ended, then you're not going to have a stable Europe, you're not going to have a secure Europe, and you're going to have a Europe that requires much more American attention. And we should also worry about what an emboldened Vladimir Putin might do after he has a few years to rebuild his army. Now, I think a lot of analysts now would say, oh, Putin would never consider attacking a Baltic state. <laughs> well, well, you know, how many analysts, I, you know, nobody in five years ago predicted that Putin was going to launch the largest war that Europe has seen, which is World War II, with his invasion in February of 22 of Ukraine. We shouldn't underestimate his ambitions. And so I see the investment that we place in Ukraine 
as defending not only Ukraine, but also defending NATO Europe and defending American interests. If we guess wrong and Russia wins in Ukraine and then Russia does make the mistake and miscalculates and tries to say, say, Eastern Estonia, there's going to be an American-Russian war, a NATO-Russian war that's going to be hugely expensive and will dwarf the costs right. that we're talking about now for assistance to Ukraine. And at this point, it doesn't seem that Mike Johnson and a lot of the MAG Republicans, they don't understand that. They, they either don't understand it or they don't care. They, they just willfully ignore it because they look at national security in a very different way. In terms of the cost effectiveness argument you were making, Steve, I mean, think about this. Ukraine's destroyed one third of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. This is a nation that doesn't have a Navy, right? This is a bargain. We're, we're spending, what is it, like 1% of the U.S. defense budget on Ukraine? If that it is, it's more than four, like four to five percent. Four to five, okay. Basically, keeping four to five hundred thousand troops in Ukraine in the field, um, right? And, and and again, I mean, you know, whether it's they don't understand or whether it's they don't care, they're they're putting America at greater jeopardy. They're putting American soldiers in greater jeopardy, and 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 they're creating risk for the United States. And, and that's what I, you know, they they you know, forget about Ukraine. Congress's job is to protect American Americans, and the way to protect American Americans right now is to help Ukraine. You know, if Ukraine falls, again, I think the risk of a conflict between NATO and Russia goes up significantly. Yeah, no, Ronald Reagan's turning over in his grave, I'll tell you that much, as is John McCain. Um, before we wrap it up, Steve, I wanted to talk about the other side of this. We've talked about the mechanics of Congress, which are complicated enough. Public intensity, public opinion. We are witnessing right now, you know, with the with 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 the with the you, you, the Israel Gaza war. You see a very 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 intense um, public protest campaign on behalf of the Palestinians that is affecting the the calculations of Democrats right in Congress about aid to Israel. I would like to see something similar around Ukraine right now. Now, I know the Ukrainian diaspora does great work with their Ukraine Days uh, events in the Congress. Um, they play a very, very good inside game. But I would I, – it's, it's, it's interesting to me that some things come, become a cause celeb and some don't. And I very early in the war, the I mentioned the Ukrainian flags all over the country be at the beginning of this segment. This is all faded. We don't see people now. This weekend, I'm going to a to a small action uh, uh, on the hill for for Ukraine after a lunch at the McCain Institute about this. But we don't see the regular kind of uh, public pressure that we see around other issues in foreign affairs, most notably right now, the Israel-Gaza situation. How do you see that? Is there, is, could we change the equation if there were just greater public pressure on, on members of Congress? Yeah, no, I, I think the, uh, when the Americans look overseas now, uh, their attention is divided. You, you've got multiple crises now, and that takes away the attention that I think Ukraine commanded in 2022 in the first part of 2023. But again, I think that can be overcome, uh, but it does recall for leadership, and I think both by Democrats and Republicans, to explain in clear terms why what's going on between Russia and Ukraine matters for American security. And also in terms of Congress, I mean, and again, this gets beyond my remit, but it, it seems to me that, I mean, the Ukrainian American organizations and other groups, you know, Polish-American organizations who I think understand what the threat is, 
you know, can they mobilize in a political way and 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 they begin to make it clear to certain members of Congress that you need to be more front in supporting Ukraine, or there will be electoral consequences. Right, right, because there are a lot of Ukrainian Americans in this country. Places. I mean, in some areas where you have, I think, large ethnic communities, I I, I don't get the sense that they that they've mobilized in the way that they could to apply political pressure that would begin to make members of Congress uh, feel that if they didn't get on the right side of this issue, that uh, they could be out of a job come November. Yeah, I see it in kind of an inside game, like the Ukrainian-American Congress, the Congress Committee, Ukrainian Congress Committee of the United States, I believe is the correct name for it. They they have regular events on the Hill I'm always attending called Ukraine Days, where they bring Ukrainian-Americans from all over the country to the Hill to talk to their representatives. That's effective, and that's impressive. When you walk in that room and you see all those Ukrainian flags and, and everything, you know, it, it works, but I fear sometimes they're preaching the converted there in, in a lot of situations. Um, Ukrainian-Americans tend to be constantly traded in bigger cities right which tend to be blue and but 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 i'm wondering i don't know if there if there, if there needs to be a change of tactic in the public politics per, the perception of this because that can that could help drive it i want members of congress to be as afraid of voting against ukrainian aid as some republicans are afraid of voting for it right exactly. I mean, we were not there yeah no i i agree I, i'm probably not the best person there to come up with a strategy for achieving that yeah. <laughs> again you've got to get to a point where Again, some of those people who are already converted, you know, it's not just enough to be for Ukraine. It's you've got to have the political courage to say, I'm prepared in the House to challenge Mike Johnson and make him either bring this thing to a vote. And quite frankly, if, if Johnson saw 10 or 15 Republicans saying, no, we're going to force this, you know, he might you know, find a way to and make that bill magically appear. Yeah. Well, from your lips to God's ears. I mean, I'm, we're, we're all watching this. Um, I'm every day hoping for some kind of a breakthrough on this, but I'm just not I'm not seeing it happening yet. We're bumping up against the end here. Steve, anything you want to add before you wrap it up for the week? No, just I mean, it, it's been two years of this awful, uh, horrible war. It's been a tragedy for Ukraine, I, I guess, though. And this gets back to a point that I think Marta made is that the war is also, I would argue, it's been a catastrophe for Russia. You know, probably between 350 and 400,000 Russian soldiers now killed or wounded in action. The economic sanctions have not had the immediate impact that we had, but the economic sanctions are having some impact on the Russian economy. I mean, you know, to the extent that they're in getting American chips or European chips, you know, if they're getting them through third countries, they're paying markups, the supply lines are disrupted. You know, uh, Russian uh, gas sales are down. It, it, Russia's probably getting less profit now for the oil sales. So it's been an economic setback. It's also been a geopolitical disaster. I mean, you have Finland now a member of NATO, and I do think once Mr. Orban in Hungary gets done playing his game, Sweden will be there. And I, I once said, you know, I wrote, if you took a Russian from 2024 and sent him in a time machine back to 2013, and he could tell his Russian counterparts in 2013, this is what Russia looks like. This is what Russia is going through in 2024. My guess is a lot of say, my God, what a disaster. You know, what idiot blundered us into that situation? So my, my hope, I guess, is as Russians begin to see that the costs of this war are accumulating to Russia, particularly in, you know, more dead Russian soldiers, at some point, does the Russian public and the Russian elite say, we've, we've had enough? Um, that may be a, a forlorn hope, but, uh, but at some point, I've got to think that just the costs become, reach the point where people say, this is too much of a price to pay 
for Putin's uh, neo-imperialist ambition. Yeah, no, and that's my great hope too. Again, it's all contingent on Western resolve. Not worried about Ukrainian resolve. I'm worried about Western resolve. And on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from lovely Morgan Hill, California in the beautiful Bay Area has been Stephen Pfeiffer, who serves as the United States Ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000 and is currently embedded at Stanford University's Center for International Security and Cooperation. Joining us from Toronto, Canada earlier had been my old friend Martin DeChalk, an associate professor of history and political science at the University of Western Ontario and the CERES fellow at the University of Toronto. Steve, thanks for an enlightening discussion. Thanks to Marta, who has since left us. Thanks for making us all a whole lot smarter. Okay. Thanks very much, Brian. Enjoyed the call. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Jareer Roman is ably filling in for Lance Legas in the virtual patrol room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Jareer also handles our all important post production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on that platform that was once known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, and check out the new Power Vertical newsletter on Substack. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. Thank you.